and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. I just finished reading The Deep by Rivers Solomon, which is a fantastic fantasy novella about mermaids who are descended from pregnant African slave women thrown overboard by slavers. It was so good. It's an exploration of memory and generational trauma and history, and I would highly recommend it. Really good. I'm reading N.K. Jemison's book of short stories, How Long Till Black Future Month. N.K. Jemison is always really good, and this collection is super clever and imaginative. I read a couple of her short stories during one of my classes at college, and I'm really excited to get to finish reading them. I also watched the movie The Dig on Netflix, which is about the Sutton Hoo archaeology excavation in like the 1930s and 40s, which was really interesting. Lulu and I were the kind of middle schoolers that spent our free time watching documentaries on the tomb of King Tut, so this was exactly up my alley. <laughs> yeah, I know so much about King Tut from my Egyptology phase in middle school. Speaking of history and dead people, Today, we are here to conduct an anthropological study on cohabitating vampires, by which I mean that I'm taking an anthropology class lately, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the movie, What We Do in the Shadows, and the novella, A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson. In other words, it's vampire time. Vampires. So, What We Do in the Shadows is a 2014 movie. There's also a TV show based off of the same premise, but we're going to focus on the original movie. It's a comedy directed by Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement, and it's a mockumentary following a group of housemate vampires who live in New Zealand. It is so funny. I love it. It's genuinely one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I saw it a couple of years ago, actually over Thanksgiving, because our family watches strange movies when we have family gatherings, I guess. And I rewatched it recently, and we decided that it would be fun to do an episode on vampires, with these as kind of one of the two pieces of media we talk about. So the mockumentary format is hilarious and used very well. The premise is that like this group of documentary makers have been given secret access into the world of vampires in New Zealand, and this is what's actually going on in New Zealand. But like, obviously it's a mockumentary, so it's not really happening, but it's really clever and funny and kind of gives it like this self-aware feel because people are talking to the cameras and like explaining things about their lives. And I just like the mockumentary format can be done really well and it was, definitely done well in this. Yeah, it's such a funny movie. I love both the movie and the TV show, but they're honestly some of my favorite takes on vampires in modern media. Unlike most other people on the planet, I have never watched or read Twilight because it was just like slightly before I got into reading fantasy stuff, but I have read and consumed some vampire things. I think I can safely say that what we do in the shadows, both the movie and the TV show, are some of my favorite media about vampires. So the vampire housemates in this movie kind of represent different types of vampires. There's Peter, who's very old and lives in the basement. There's Vladislav, a medieval vampire called Vladislav the Poker, who's like obviously a bit of a play on Vlad the Impaler and Dracula. Viago is a 17th century vampire who immigrated to New Zealand for the woman that he loves. He's also played by Watiti, and he's kind of like a parody of Interview with a Vampire. 
Deacon is like the young bad boy 18th century vampire. I think he's a Dracula, but a different interpretation. I'm not 100% sure on that. And Nick, who's like the new vampire that joins the group over the course of the movie, is a modern New Zealand guy who's kind of Twilight. And this is like mentioned in the movie a lot, actually, because they make a lot of jokes about like public perceptions of vampires because of Twilight. Yeah, I think it's really clever that all the vampires in What We Do in the Shadows represent kind of different generations and takes on vampires. Like, Peter, I think, is supposed to be Nosferatu, who's like really early vampire story, whereas Nick is like Twilight and therefore kind of a more modern take on vampires, and that's kind of fun. Yeah, it also means there's like a lot of clashing wills and conflicts between the different characters because they all have different opinions on how to do stuff and how they should run their household and like where they should get their victims from and it just involves a lot of delightful comedy of like these very different vampires who all live together. There are also werewolves which is fun it's like kind of a broader world with like various different magical kinds of creatures like werewolves and I think there's some zombies at one point and some witches but the main focus is on vampires. Nick's human friend Stu is also there everyone likes Stu even though he's just a human. Who doesn't like Stu, honestly? He's a nice guy. So like all of the main vampires are guys. There aren't really any important female characters except for Jackie, a regular woman who runs errands for vampires in hopes of eventually becoming one herself someday. Although it's pretty clear no one intends to ever actually turn her into one. They're just using her for free labor. This is kind of a thing from like vampire mythology that people would serve a vampire master or mistress in hopes of eventually being turned themselves. I think they're usually called familiars. So Jackie is kind of like a modern day take on that. Thankfully, she does get her due by the end of the movie because Nick, who just like thinks she's a fine person and is not like exploiting her, turns her into a vampire towards the end of the movie. So she gets to like have her wish. But yeah, there aren't a lot of female characters, but it's still a fun movie and I enjoy the dynamics of the main group. Nadia and the TV show is like my favorite vampire ever though. Oh yeah, I I know I said we were going to focus mostly on the movie of what we do in the shadows, but I would just like to mention that I adore the TV show. It focuses on like a different group of vampire roommates in different locations and it includes Nadia who is genuinely my favorite character on the show. She's just like a very old, funny female vampire, and she's hilarious. Many, many lines from this movie are frequently quoted in our household, uh, such as, the police might come, possibly even Christians, which is totally the last thing we need in this house. I'm also a big fan of, I go for a look that I call dead but delicious, which has very few applications to the real world if you're not a vampire, but it's just so funny that I like to say it all the time anyway. Yeah, also I think it's like a good parody of the vampires are like sexy and dramatic and hot thing. So it's just a very funny movie with a lot of extremely quotable lines and I love it a lot. It works really well as a comedy because there are a bunch of very old vampires in fancy clothing who don't really know how the modern world works, but they like also bicker about who does the dishes and have trouble getting invited into nightclubs to party and find victims. And it's just a really great setup. It's pretty slice of life in terms of plot, I would say. There isn't like a lot of action happening. There's sort of like these little storylines that we follow through like Jackie the familiar who really wants to get turned into a vampire but is basically just spent her life cleaning up after the vampire's messes instead. Then there's how Vladislav has this rivalry with someone called the Beast that's mentioned a couple of times and then how Nick who is a new vampire who was originally brought in to be fed on gets turned into a vampire and how he adjusts to life as a vampire after being a human pretty recently. He's like a little bit of the viewpoint character occasionally because we start to see how the vampire world functions because of his introduction to it but it's it's pretty slice of life like I said 
it, I think it translated well into a TV show because there's sort of these like little episodic stories that you follow. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's kind of slice of life because the premise is that it's just a documentary that's following these guys throughout like a few months of their life. So that kind of works like that. The TV show, by contrast, is set in Staten Island, but the movie is set in New Zealand. I kind of like that it's set in New Zealand. I think it's just fun. Like it adds a little extra spin to it because you often so think of vampires as being in like crumbling castles in Transylvania or like France or something. So it's just sort of funny to me that they're in like suburban New Zealand hanging out in this big mansion. Yeah, that's honestly definitely a big part of the comedy because the world they live in is just so incredibly normal. And these are like a bunch of weirdos that still like dress like they live in the 18th century. And it just is, it works really well. I think it's funny. A lot of the comedy just comes from the mundane aspects of vampire life, like trying to get your roommates to put down newspapers before you drink someone's blood so you don't stain the new couch or needing a bouncer to like invite you into a club so you can find potential feeding victims or having to like call up people and invite them over and then drink their blood but like the awkwardness of trying to find humans that you can feed on. So a lot of the comedy just comes from like the idea of what it would be like to be a vampire who's really old but is now living in like a modern day 21st century world trying to kind of navigate your life in the shadows. Hence the name, what we do in the shadows. Yeah, the scene where they're trying to get the bouncer to invite themselves into the club always makes me laugh because it's just a part of vampire mythos that they often take very seriously. Like, as long as the vampire can't get into your house, you're safe. But in this case, like, they have to ask people to let them in whenever they go somewhere, and that's really funny. Because in, in a lot of kind of vampire mythos, vampires have to be invited into your home so all the vampires are just kind of like awkwardly standing outside and trying to get a bouncer to phrase it exactly right so he can invite them into the club and they're all dressed in like really out of date clashing clothing and it's just really funny. Basically it has a very matter-of-fact approach to the horrific and bloody aspects of being a vampire such as killing people and drinking their blood but also the idea of vampires having to deal with totally regular things like doing the dishes or cleaning their house. I mean, there are kind of more serious moments, like when the vampires kind of reflect on what they've left behind in their human lives, like especially because Nick has been really recently turned into a vampire and he's kind of adjusting the fact that now he is like immortal and can turn into a bat, but he also has to drink blood to survive and can't eat human food and has to like deal with telling his friends that he's a vampire now. So it's pretty comedic, but there are sort of moments that are a little bit more serious, but it does have like a very funny approach to like the dark reality that would be living as a vampire and having to feed on other people to survive. Yeah, it doesn't really deal with the moral quandary of having to kill people to like drink their blood and live. There are a couple moments where like they'll they'll invite someone over to their house and like have a nice conversation with them and you're like, oh, are they gonna maybe feel bad about this? And like, nope, they just drink their blood and, and get on with their lives because that's what they do. Also, it contains what I think is really funny twist on the kind of vampire-human relationship because so often there's media where there's like this ageless vampire who happens to look really young, who falls in love with a human who might be like a teenager and like a young adult paranormal romance. But this movie has kind of a fun twist on that where the vampire guy still looks pretty young, but he's dating a 94 year old because to vampires, that's still really young. And there's just like a funny line where he's like, yeah, some people kind of get weirded out when they see us together. They're like, what is this guy doing with a woman like a quarter of his age? But the joke is obviously that she looks like she's 94 and he still looks like he's like in his 20s or 30s. 
I love that part because it is true that a lot of like paranormal romance novels, whether they're young adult or adult, will generally have like a huge age difference between like the human main character and their vampire or fairy or angel or what have you love interest. And I thought this was like a funny way of acknowledging that like, yeah, vampires would probably be more drawn to people who are like in their 90s because they have like a life experience that's closer to their own. So that was a fun aspect of the movie that I liked a lot. Not to drag books that do have like a 20 year old and an immortal vampire, but I think it's fun when they have like a older character who's dating an immortal person because like, why not? I also just like that Viago turns his like 94 year old girlfriend to a vampire and the implication is she's just gonna like chill and enjoy her immortal life for the rest of eternity looking 94 and just drinking people's blood and hanging out with him, which I think is sort of a fun idea. Yeah, that's the implication because he emigrated to New Zealand for like the woman he loved who was also going to New Zealand, but apparently his familiar back in Europe uh, like wrote the address wrong in his coffin. It took him like a couple of years to get there instead. And by the time he arrived, she was already married. So he just kind of hung out in New Zealand for a few decades being sad. And then he found her in a nursing home and her husband had died and she just got together with him. So like, happy ending, yay. I feel like this movie really encapsulates this piece of advice that I heard about comedy once, which is that good humor comes from people acting normally in outlandish circumstances or acting outlandishly in normal circumstances. And I feel like this movie kind of does both because we have these vampires who have very matter of fact attitudes towards being vampires. Like, hey, could you put down some newspapers before you drink someone's blood because you keep staying in the living room? Or like, can you guys go do the dishes? Like we've been living in this house for several decades and no one's done dishes for like five years. But then they also, the vampires act wildly when they encounter like normal human things like the internet or going outside to like clubs and stuff. And it's just funny because I feel like it does both of those things. Uh, Yeah, I loved the part where Nick's friend Stu explains how the internet works to other vampires because a lot of vampire stories are historical so you don't really think about like what would they think of the internet and in this case they just didn't really know it existed because I guess it just developed while they were hanging out in their apartment and then Stu explains to them like how to google things and buy things online and it's really funny. There are a couple moments where it gets a little bit more serious like when Nick is running through the house trying to escape the vampires that want to kill him it definitely gets a little bit like horror with some jump scares or like there's a part where a vampire hunter breaks into their house and kills Peter in the basement. But overall, it has a very comedic tone of these like totally not human guys just trying to pretend they're regular people and like live their lives and drink people's blood. The sequence of the vampires discovering the internet is one of my favorite things because it leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is, leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet. What are you bidding on? A table. And I just, I think I've said, leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet a lot since I've seen this movie. (laughs) Oh, so many times. Anyway, I just love it a lot. It's one of my favorite films because it's so funny. And like every time I watch it, there's always a new funny part that I'd forgotten about to enjoy. I feel like it's good because we keep referencing Twilight in this podcast despite not having actually read or watched it really. But I feel like it's a good movie because it doesn't take vampires seriously because so often people are like, oh, vampires are tormented and sexy and there's like forbidden romance between the vampire and the human or like you must drink blood to survive and you're a monster, but you still remember your life as a human and it's like very intense and stuff. But this movie just like doesn't take the vampires seriously and I feel like that's sort of a breath of fresh air because it's just like, yeah, the vampires are like, really dumb they don't know how the internet works and like they're terrible at finding victims and like they argue over like having to vacuum the house and stuff and i think it's just fun because it takes this 
concept that's usually pretty serious, which is just like vampires, and instead just makes it really funny. And it just doesn't take itself seriously, which I enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Like, there are ways that you can explore vampires seriously that I think are interesting, like people's obsession with being immortal and beautiful, or like, would you want to live if the cost was killing other people? But sometimes it gets a bit boring, and it can just be fun to like, watch a group of vampire housemates get into a big fight about who has to do the dishes because they think that doing the dishes is above them as a vampire. Right! It's just like fun, because so often vampire media is serious that it was just a real breath of fresh air for this movie to be like, no, actually these vampires are all just like morons. And also like in a lot of media, the vampire lives alone in their big crumbling mansion, except for like maybe some ghosts and their familiars. But come on, in, in the modern day, vampires would totally be housemates because they can like relate to each other and they can help pay the rent and stuff. So I think that's very fun. So the other piece of media that we want to talk about today is A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson. And it's an adult fantasy novella published in 2021. And it's a very loose retelling of Dracula's Brides. I attended a virtual event that the author did about the book. And I was like, ooh, I have to read this as soon as I heard the concept. And it absolutely did not disappoint. It's so good. Like I said, it's a pretty loose retelling of Dracula. But you can absolutely read it without having read Dracula, which is what both of us did. And it follows Constanta, who is the eldest of Dracula's brides, as she writes a letter to her husband detailing the centuries they spent together and the downfall of their relationship that culminates in her murdering him. She's the narrator, but her husband has two other brides in the form of Alexei, a starving Russian artist, and Magdalena, a cunning Spanish aristocrat. So it also kind of follows their relationship over the centuries. Constanta herself was a peasant from medieval Eastern Europe that her husband saved as she was dying. So their relationship kind of begins with her feeling like she owes him a debt and it doesn't really become like more healthy or less codependent from like there on as the novella explores. Also, Constanta's husband is never actually named, but he's either Dracula or very closely based off of him just because he has a lot of similarities to the famous fictional character. There's a really good bit early on in the book where she discusses how she is not going to refer to her husband by name because the whole book is basically told in epistolary format in the form of a letter that Constanta is writing to her husband after she killed him and she never names him she only refers to him as you throughout the whole thing but there's this really powerful passage where she addresses him and explains why she won't be using his name and it's just so good that I'm going to read it out loud right now actually it goes You did not let me keep my name, so I will strip you of yours. In this world, you are what I say you are, and I say you are a ghost, a long night's fever dream that I've finally woken up from. I say you are the smoke wisp of memory of a flame, thawing ice suffering under an early spring sun, a chalk ledger of debts being wiped clean. I say you do not have a name. And it's just so good because it plays around with the way that this is a retelling, but it shifts the focus completely from Dracula to this character who is like sort of an original creation. And when Constanta's life was saved by her husband and she was turned into a vampire, he renamed her and was kind of like, you're going to be a constant presence. I'm going to be depending on you. I will call you Constanta. And when she's writing this letter to him detailing why she decided to kill him and like the events that led up to it and her emotional state and all the years that they spent together, she decides that she doesn't want to give him the luxury of having a name, but because he took her name away, she will be in turn taking his away. It's just, it's so good. I love things about meaningful names. It really is. Meaningful names are one of my favorite tropes in fiction. I also loved the epistolary format of this because it's about how Constanta's husband has tried to control her, but now she is controlling the narrative. She's writing what she wants to. And it also has fun stuff like she'll 
write a paragraph and then scratch it out because like she's not satisfied with it or she'll start over again. And I just thought that was very clever and a good way of showing how difficult it is for her to write this, but how necessary she feels like it is to like chronicle her relationship with her husband and explain like how it went downhill and how she killed him. It's also like very clear from the first page that she did kill him. She says like, I'm writing this letter because like I've killed you and I have to explain why I did it and what led up to it. And I really liked the format because you know off the bat that this terrible thing has happened. You're not quite sure why. And then you get to hear Constanta's opinion on it and not her husband's. I don't actually know how heavily this is based off of Dracula because I've never read Dracula despite meaning to for a really long time. But the way it kind of switches focus entirely to Constanta is really interesting. We don't actually know that much about her husband. I think at one point it says that he was a human around the time of a great plague in Athens. So according to my knowledge from classics courses in college, he was probably a human around like 430 BCE during the Peloponnesian War. But other than that, we don't learn as much about him um, or his past. He's not the focus of it. He's like the bad guy. And it really delves more into Constanta's history and development and emotional state and her relationship with her kind of fellow brides, Alexei and Magdalena. So it completely shifts the focus from the Dracula character to his wives in a way that I thought was really interesting. Thank you for that wonderful application of your classics knowledge, Lulu. Also, one thing that I really liked about this novella is that all four of the characters are bi and in a polyamorous relationship, which I thought was cool because that's not incredibly common in fiction. And I think it does a really good job of exploring the abusive relationship that the three of them have with their husband, but the way that the love between Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexei is very strong and is what allows them to survive this abusive relationship. I feel like it would make sense for a lot of vampires to be bi because if you live forever, you're probably just going to be like, meh, like I just have a relationship with whoever. In the TV show of What We Do in the Shadows, which we've mentioned, a bunch of the vampires are bi and Laszlo and Nadia, who are the married couple, are in an open relationship. So like this is definitely becoming more of a thing in vampire media. And I think it's interesting because like over the course of an immortal lifetime, it makes sense that someone would have a lot of different kinds of relationships with a lot of different kinds of people. So I just think that's a cool addition to both kinds of media. I agree. I think it's fun because that way you get to see characters explore such different relationships with such different people. Like Constanta's relationship with her husband is very different from her relationship with Magdalena. And her relationship with Magdalena is very different from her relationship with Alexei. So I think that's just like, it was a good choice because you get to see these relationships between the characters in, in different ways and different combinations. So anyway, the novella follows Constanta and her fellow brides as they're kind of collected by her husband and they travel across Europe over the centuries living in various places and originally it's just Constanta the other brides come later so we get like a pretty long stretch that's just Constanta and her husband and then Magdalena and Alexei are, are introduced a little bit later it's interesting because I think it gives you a good sense of how the character relationships are built up. The novella doesn't open with them all in a relationship. You get to see how they met, how they fell in love, how their relationships developed, how her relationship with her husband eventually became abusive enough that she realized that they had to leave. Okay, at the end of the novella, they also learn that their husband has been marrying and then killing people when they bore him for like hundreds and hundreds of years. So they're actually kind of part of a cycle and it's kind of what breaks Constanta because for a long time she believed that she was special and chosen and then she realizes that she's actually just like one person in a long line of people that her husband has treated in the same way as her and it kind of like spurs her on to break away from him and become free. And I thought that was an interesting choice because it just really emphasizes how old and powerful and controlling her husband really is. 
it's really about kind of this cycle of abuse and Constanta realizing that the only way that she can escape is by killing her husband because if she simply left he would probably find her and kill her and you really start to see like why she did such an extreme thing because at the start you're like wow okay so she killed her husband wow that's a little bit extreme and then you, you keep reading on and you're like oh so this is actually the only thing that she could do to be safe and get away from her husband permanently but I, I, I do think it's sort of an interesting choice to open the book knowing that she's killed her husband and then slowly go back and fill in the gaps as to why she did this and what led up to that. Basically, this novella advocates for murdering your abuser and drinking his blood, although presumably only the last part if you're a vampire. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more that because he's such a powerful supernatural creature who's lived for so long that it wouldn't just be possible for her to leave because he would find her. She has to take the most extreme route and kill him. Oh, also one thing that I really liked about this novella is that at the end of the story, Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexei are still in a happy polyamorous relationship. And I really liked that because it's shown very clearly that their relationship with their husband is abusive. He's very controlling. They feel like they can't live an independent life without them. He tries to like manage every aspect of their life and control like who they meet and where they go and what they think. But Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexei like all truly care for each other and support each other throughout their time together. And I really liked that they end the novella like still in a happy relationship because I don't think polyamorous relationships are like inherently abusive or terrible it's just the people in them and so I liked that this novella is like actually the three of them managed to survive their relationship with their husband because of each other it's that strength that lets them kill him and move on and have better lives the circumstances that they all met under were you know like less than ideal but the relationship that seems to have formed between Constanta and Magdalena and Lexi is like a relationship that they all kind of draw a lot of strength from so I think it kind of makes sense that even by the end when they're like, now that we're kind of free to go travel the world and be separate, they all still care for each other because it's not the relationship between them that was bad. It was sort of like the shadow that the husband was casting over the whole thing. In the beginning of the novella, Constanta is on her own with her husband. And even then he definitely has some very controlling aspects, but Constanta kind of feels like she is happy with him and like this is just part of the relationship and it's seeing the way that he treats Magdalena and Alexi that helps spur her to action because she cares about them so much that he doesn't want them to go through the same thing that she's going through so I just really liked that because I cared about their relationship a lot and I think St. Gibson did a great job of developing, developing it as something that makes them all happy and is like a good thing and it's not inherently bad or tainted just because they first met under these circumstances of being collected as brides by this one abusive vampire master. Mm -hmm. Also, I thought the settings of this novella are really cool because it takes place over the course of several centuries. So there's like medieval Eastern Europe, Renaissance Spain, early 20th century Russia. And so the descriptions and the way that Constantin talks about the passage of time are really pretty. And I liked that aspect a lot. I really like that as well. It's a very character focused kind of internal novella that's very focused on Constanta and like her growing realization that this relationship she's in needs to be ended at all costs. But I still kind of thought S.T. Gibson did a good job kind of portraying the passage of time and these characters moving through city after city because they're vampires. They can't really stay in one place that long. People will get suspicious. So they go around to various parts of Europe. I think the novella itself takes place over about 400 years maybe. But I think even though it's not really focused on like world events or the external world, S.T. Gibson does like a really good job of conveying this passage of time. 
I think S.T. Gibson also did a really good job writing from the point of view of a very old non-human character because Constanta is writing this whole book from her present day. So even when she's talking about herself as a young vampire or looking back on her youth, she's still like a 400 year old vampire writing this letter to her husband. And I think nailing the voice of someone who's really old and really powerful can be kind of hard, but I think this novella did it really well and I was impressed by that. Oh, absolutely. Even the sections that are told from the point of view of Constanta when she's much younger and has just been turned into a vampire, they sound like someone who's much older and has much seen many more things and is more jaded, reflecting back on herself as a young person. And I really like that because I think it can be difficult to like make a voice that sounds like someone who's been alive for 400 years and has been like everywhere from 15th century Romania to 20th century Russia. But it's really nailed in this book. S.T. Gibson does a great job with the atmosphere and writing and Constanta's narrative voice. I think it takes place from about 15th century, which is when Constanta is turned into a vampire in Romania, to about the 20th century. So there's a lot of time that's covered, and it's not a particularly long book because it's a novella, but I think it feels very seamless because it's so focused on these characters and their shifting relationships over the decades and centuries that it makes the passage of time feel very like well done and easy. And also S.T. Gibson's writing is just really good and fits this so well. Like it's just deliciously gothic is the best way that I could think of describing it. Uh, Yeah, it really is. Like there's one point when Constanta is thinking about when she first met her husband and she's discussing how she sees him in this moment of weakness and she thinks, I knew then that I would chase your tiny moments of weakness all the way into hell and back. What is more lovely after all than a monster undone with want? And I think this novella was just really good at creating a narrative voice that fits this like dark gothic story that follows a bunch of old immortal characters really well. Yes, I loved it. I also thought that S.T. Gibson had a complex portrayal of Constanta's husband because he does seem to care about her in his own way, but he's also very abusive. And I liked that S.T. Gibson didn't just make him like completely evil, 100% like awful person. The thing, the problem that Constanta has and the reason that it takes her so long to leave him is that she recognizes that he does love her. It's just a very abusive, controlling kind of love. And that's part of the reason that the novella takes place over the course of so many centuries, because it takes that long for Constanta to realize that it's not really love of the person who claims to do so is abusive and controlling and tries to like manage every aspect of your life. I thought that was really interesting because Constanta's husband is so powerful and she feels like so under the sway of his charisma that it takes her a really long time to realize that he is a bad person but the novella also still acknowledges that he is a person with feelings of his own and he does care about her it's just not in a good or healthy way exactly like when she's a young vampire she's totally dependent on him for survival and for navigating this new world that she's a part of and then later as they grow older they're kind of the only people that really understand each other because they're so apart from other humans and they kind of have to travel around before people begin to become suspicious of them. And it's once that she kind of finds other kindred spirits in Magdalena and Alexei that she sort of starts to realize that her relationship with her husband is abnormal, not just in the fact that he's a vampire and she's a vampire and they're centuries old, but also that he's not protective, he's controlling and he's not loving, he's abusive. But because of like such unusual circumstances that their relationship starts in and the fact that, you know, they are really the only people who can understand each other in the world for a really long time. It takes her such a long time to realize that not only is this relationship just 
different from how humans have relationships with each other is also just like bad. Yeah, and the novella does a pretty clear job of exploring the ways that Constanta's husband controls her. Like there's a part where she is in a city living with him in like a fancy mansion and she befriends another woman and he is not pleased with that and is like, you can never see her again. I don't want you to be friends with her. I don't want you to be friends with any humans in case they realize who you are, which is like vampires do have to hide in this world. It's not one where they're commonly known. It's basically our world, but there are vampires like secretly there. But he also goes to such extremes that he doesn't want Constanta to have any friends that he doesn't approve of, any relationships that he doesn't approve of. There's a part where she tries to run away a bit earlier on in their relationship and she leaves and then she realizes that she doesn't have any idea where to go or what to do with herself when she's not in a relationship with him and she ends up coming back. This also extends to the other brides because Magdalena is like very intellectual and outgoing and into politics and for a long time as they travel around she keeps up correspondence with various other politicians and people in Europe but their husband really discourages it. He doesn't want her to have outside relationships besides him and it's the same with Alexi who's also very extroverted and he used to be an actor but her husband really doesn't want Alexi to like be an actor because he claims that it's a public position and people will start to notice that he's not aging. He doesn't want them to have friends or throw parties without him. And he claims that it's because he's afraid that people are going to find out they're vampires, but you realize that it's really just because he wants to control every aspect of their life. Exactly. It really uses kind of these fantasy trappings and like the vampire archetype to explore at the heart of it an abusive relationship and why someone might not realize they're in one at first and why it might take someone a really long time to leave one. And it's just interesting because this is a story about non-human creatures who are immortal and have to feed on blood and they're not like us and they see the world differently but also the heart of the story is like a very human thing which is just realizing that someone you think loves you is actually harming you. Yeah, and I think that's why the novella works so well, because it's not just about vampires being sexy and drinking blood and touring Europe. It has like a very human heart to it. And the emotional core of the book is about Constanta regaining her independence along with Magdalena and Alexei. And like they do this by killing their husband and stabbing him through the heart with a stake and then drinking his blood. But it's ultimately about realizing that you can leave your abuser, even if it might be difficult, and live an independent life without them. The way that it explores the emotional intensity of her relationship with her husband is just like really immersive and it, it puts you into Constanta's place so easily and you kind of understand why she stayed with him for so long and why she kept telling herself that he was just doing this for her good and stuff. Like there's one bit early on where she's reflecting on her relationship with her husband and she says, oh God, how I adored you. It went beyond love, beyond devotion. I want to dash myself against your rocks like a wave to obliterate my old self and see what rose shining anew from the sea foam. So it explores this really toxic, terrible relationship, but Gibson's writing is also just really good and it fits it so well. It is, and the narration of the book works well, I think, because it starts when Constanta first meets her husband. So we see her like kind of basically die and gain a new life as a vampire and he's 
there every step of the way to explain to her what her life is like now that she's immortal, how to live it, how to keep humans from noticing who she is, how to drink their blood. And so she feels like he's the only person she can rely on. But then as she gets older, she realizes that he's not actually a good person, that there are people in the world that do care about her in ways that aren't toxic and abusive. By the end of the novella, Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexei have managed to escape this very controlling partner and have lives of their own and be happy. It's interesting because what we do in The Shadows and A Dowry of Blood technically have the very basic premise in common, which is that it's about a group of vampires who live together and have lived together for a really long time. And it focuses on kind of the interpersonal relationships between these vampires rather than like vampire-human relationships and like a lot of other media. But the way that these two pieces of media tackle that concept is very different because what we do in The Shadows, the vampires living together is really just played for comedy because they have to do chores and... Sometimes they don't get along and they get into fights. They have to keep the neighbors from guessing that they're vampires and stuff. But in A Dowry of Blood, it's it's almost played for horror because Constanta and her fellow brides are trapped with their husband and they're forced to rely on him and they feel like they can't leave him or have an independent life away from him and they just, they don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, in A Dowry of Blood, the monster is in the house with them and claims to love them. Whereas in What We Do with the Shadows, the monsters are just very silly and like don't know how to use the internet. And it's a very different contrast, really. Watching the TV show What We Do in the Shadows hit kind of different during the pandemic because it's about a bunch of people living together sometimes and they're really getting on each other's nerves because they've been there for a super long time. And I was just watching this and I was like, oh dear, this is so relatable. I know, especially the TV show, because it's just about these roommates who are all kind of stuck together and like bouncing off of each other and kind of getting on each other's nerves. And at that point, we had all been in quarantine for months. And I was like, oh, this is a little bit more relatable than it should be, <laughs> considering I'm not an immortal vampire. Yeah, well, the whole point of what we do in the shadows, I guess, is that like vampires, they're just like you, really. Whereas the Dowry of Blood is like a bit more traditionally vampire and kind of emphasizes their immortal status and how they're not like other people. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's kind of about that being a monster is not inherent to being a vampire because we see that there are people like Constanta who kind of sees herself as an avenging angel and only preys on people that she thinks are terrible and deserve it. And then there's someone like her husband who just is like terrible and even hurts his fellow vampires, which I thought was kind of interesting because in some ways being a monster is inherent to being a vampire because you have to feed on other people to survive and often kill. But then Constanta kind of tries to put like a positive spin on the fact that she has to kill people to live and she sort of becomes someone who's almost kind of like a historical European vigilante who preys on like terrible men and thinks that she should only drink the blood of people who deserve it. Constantia's husband encourages this way of feeding on people because I guess he thinks it's kind of funny that she's an avenging angel but then it comes back to bite him because then she avenges herself on him so like it sucks to be you dude but you shouldn't have been terrible in the first place. In what we do in the shadows they acquire their victims through much more mundane ways like their familiar Jackie will just call up random people that she remembered from school or work that she doesn't like very much and invite them over in hopes that they'll get eaten which is very funny and it kind of does bring up the question of like how would you go about finding victims to like kill and drink their blood in modern day times? Ah, uh, those bits were so awkward. Like when they invite the people over to have dinner and try to make terrible small talk with them and then just like kill them. And then it's the contrast between this sort of terrible, mundane, awkward small talk and the fact that like they're about to just like rip out your throat and drink your blood. And like it goes from kind of like funny, almost cringe comedy to like really horrific really fast because. What we do in the shadows is a comedy, but there's also like definitely moments of gore and kind of the disturbing side of being a vampire. 
the fake blood in this movie, there's so much of it, more of it than I remember there being. Oh my god, yeah, so much. It, it was it was a bit much, yeah. So anyway, back to the whole living together thing. Uh, Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexei are really forced to confront the fact that they have to escape their husband towards the end of the novella because after they disobey some of his orders and like Alexei hosts a party with his actor friends without permission, their husband gets really mad, both that he thinks they're going to expose themselves as vampires, but also that they just would dare do something without his permission that he doesn't want them to do. And so they move and they become isolated and trapped in this really old European manner. And before this, it's been shown that he's already been pretty controlling, but they were able to interact with the outside world and being trapped in this big empty manner with only themselves and their husband makes the them realize that they really need to act and break away from him sooner rather than later because he'll probably end up killing them at this rate. Constanta learns by investigating her husband's possessions that he's had previous wives and husbands that all had terrible ends. So they're kind of trapped in this house with the monster who's also someone they love. And it's kind of when the tension of the novella reaches its peak because they realize they have to act and they have to act now before it's too late. Whereas the whole living together thing and what we do in the shadows is really just a comedic aspect of it. Like taking your bloodstained clothing to the laundromat because you have to clean stuff, but having to come up with an explanation for people about why your clothing's all covered in blood or like the neighbors thinking that you're kind of weird or worrying that someone might see you flying around in the form of a bat or something. But in A Dowry of Blood, it's really about like this claustrophobic aspect of the story where they're all stuck together and slowly realizing that things are kind of rising to a climax where either he dies or they die and it's just it's very intense. Yeah the novella ends with them teaming up together to kill their husband and they actually escape from him they escape from this big old house and they escape from the villagers outside that are angry and want their blood so the novella doesn't actually end with the vampires like cohabitating together because the three of them kind of go their separate ways and have independent lives to explore the outside world together like they still love each other and they're still in a relationship but they aren't forced to stay together by their husband and they're able to have more independent lives and go to different places in the world and explore careers, meet new people. So I liked that aspect a lot because by the end of the novella, it really gets so claustrophobic, as you said, because they can't leave this house and they're just stuck there and the tensions are rising. So by the end of the story, when they're able to leave and go somewhere on their own and do whatever they want, it feels very satisfying and freeing. The fact that they are able to leave and are able to go their separate directions is the happy ending of the story. Whereas in what we do in the shadows, a lot of the happier moments come from the characters kind of agreeing to get along and all living together because they have such interpersonal conflict throughout the movie and like this introduction of a new vampire kind of shaking things up. But for them, kind of the happy ending for these characters is all learning to live together and get along a little bit better than they did at the start. And also getting along with the local werewolves that have turned up a couple points and like inviting the werewolves over to the house and stuff. So they have very different endings because in A Dowry of Blood, going their separate ways and not being forced to live together with their husband is the happy ending for these characters. You can now like experience freedom and go see the world separate from each other. But in what we do in the shadows, the happy ending really comes from these characters kind of learning to stand each other and being able to live together. Yeah, exactly. There's also a pretty big contrast between how the vampires live together, because as we said, in what we do in the shadows, they live in a suburban neighborhood in New Zealand in the 21st century, whereas the vampires in A Dowry of Blood live in big gothic mansions and crumbling castles in historical Europe, which is a much more traditional idea of how vampires live and is like more dramatic, whereas in what we do in the shadows, it's much more comedic. I really do feel like these two pieces of media kind of 
represent the two ends of the spectrum of what types of vampire media I enjoy because I like it when stuff is kind of dark and gothic and historical like a diary of blood but I also kind of like it when stuff is comedic and plays into like the sort of weird or awkward aspects of being a vampire like what we do in the shadows does but what I really enjoy about both of these is that they kind of focus on like the centuries of drama and conflict that can build up among vampires because I don't find media that's like about relationships between vampires and humans particularly compelling and like I wasn't that interested in Alexei when he was initially turned into a vampire because he's like turned into a vampire when he's pretty young after they find him in 20th century Russia. But it's more interesting when he becomes a vampire and has spent like years living with them. And I really hope that that kind of represents like, I don't know, more of an interest in inter-vampire drama rather than like vampires and humans forbidden love, which I feel like has been a really common take on vampire stories in the past. Yes, exactly. More interpersonal vampire relationships, please. Like, obviously, a lot of media about vampires features human protagonists because we can relate to them more or because, like, it's a young adult novel and it makes sense to have, like, a 16-year-old human protagonist rather than a 240-year-old vampire protagonist. But I think that vampire interpersonal relationships can be really rich and interesting in either a comedic way or a horror way just because there's so many centuries of being a vampire that's possible and they can have done so many things and have like such long histories with each other that it can be really fun to explore that. And I thought that although they're extremely different kinds of media, what we do in the shadows and a dowry of blood did a great job of exploring how people's relationships would like change and evolve over the course of these characters being hundreds of years old and how that would affect their outlook on life. In what we do in the shadows, it's kind of characters that have been hanging around each other for centuries or decades and getting each other's nerves and have lots of beef together. And Vladislav like has this ex-girlfriend that he has this like on and off again relationship that comes up near the end of the movie. Whereas in A Dowry of Blood, it's kind of more of a, a dark take on it and that these people are sort of the only ones in the world who understand you, but also that doesn't necessarily mean that they mean you well. But I like that both of them focus on relationships between vampires because it's just like such an interesting concept. Humans don't live for centuries and we don't have to feed on other people to stay alive, but vampires do. So I think focusing on the original part of like what comes with vampire stories and not the human aspect is way more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes it's just as simple as nagging your vampire roommate into doing the dishes. Couldn't have said it better myself. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, follow us at nevertwinscast on Twitter, at neverthetwinsshallmeet on Instagram, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com.